0: Awesome. Well, it's great to be with you guys this morning. We are continuing our study in the book of Acts. The book of Acts, we've been watching how God has been showing us the early church and how it started and how we got to where we are today. The book of Acts is said to be a book that is, it's not closed yet because it's the acts of the apostles, the acts of the church, and that's still happening today that we are God's instruments, God's vessels, being filled with his spirit to carry out the acts that Jesus had started. It's quite incredible how just 12 men, just 12 disciples, once Judas was replaced by Paul, when filled with the spirit, completely radicalized our world, completely changed it. The way we live today, what we study, the way we look at our, our our calendar, all these things were impacted by these men. These men who were anointed of God, men who were powerfully used, but they were also men who were fallible men who were at times selfish, men who at times were foolish, men who sinned. And God had grace in their life. They were men who were striving after the holiness of God in their life. And God used them. God had given them so much love in their heart to preach the gospel. We've been watching how Paul went from being a anti-Christ, anti-Christian man, a man who was taking Christians so that they can be tried and put in jail, and how God grabbed a hold of his life. And then God said, look, I'm going to show you things that you're going to suffer for my name's sake. That he might preach to the Gentiles, to the whole world. And so with this love that compelled Paul, he began to to journey, he began to fill the great commission that Jesus had given the disciples. Jesus said, go out and preach the gospel everywhere you go that start in Judea this the home city and then from there to Samaria and then to the outermost portions of the world. And he gives us that same call. This is the heart of a, of a missionary, the heart of a shepherd that we're reading of today. And as we've been studying how Paul has been journeying now over in the north part of the Mediterranean, near Antioch. Paul now returns to Judea. And this is kind of where we take off as he's come back home now at the end of his first missions trip. So we begin with Acts chapter 15, beginning with verse 1. It says, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless... You are circumcised according to the custom of Moses. You cannot be saved. Now remember, in Antioch, Paul and Barnabas, they were discipling the young converts for a long time, the Bible says. And these Jewish converts there in Antioch, uh, from Judea, they traveled to Antioch, and they had begun now, to teach a doctrine contrary to what Paul was teaching. You see, there was Jewish men uh, who believed now in Jesus, believed in Jesus as their Messiah, but they were still holding on to the traditions of, of the Jewish law. They now, as they are seeing these new converts who are Gentiles and many of them not circumcised, began to teach to them that unless they were circumcised, that they were not able to be saved. Now, circumcision. We, we've read of this before in the Bible. The circumcision that they were referring to was this covenant that was a sign of God's chosen people, that they had cut off this portion of the flesh in their life, and they were now dedicated to Jehovah, Jehovah the one true God. And it, it was a, a symbol of this cutting away of the, the sinful life. And it's, it's quite interesting why that was what the type of sign that God had given the Israelites. It was uh, this circumcision was this, this symbol on an instrument that was used for either great good or for great evil. And God wanted to mark his people. Paul would write about circumcision in Romans chapter 2. He would write that there was a spiritual circumcision. And it was not just about obeying just the law. But there needed to be a change of heart in the, by the spirit. In Romans chapter 2, he would explain that if you don't obey God's law... Then you're no better off than someone whos uncircumcised," he would explain to the Jewish people. See, because God is not concerned so much on the outside as He is with what's happening inward, the hearts of men and women. And this isn't quite a new New Testament theme. This also is in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 10:16, the Israelites were told. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. So this doctrine is is being taught to these new converts there in Antioch that they needed to be circumcised. And look at verse 2. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas... And certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So I have in my Bible underlined no small dissension, meaning there was a very big dissension. There was an argument that was now taking place. You See, Paul and Barnabas were against this idea that you needed to be sa- circumcised in order to be saved. And when they began to see that these Jewish elders were teaching these new converts that you needed to be circumcised, they were upset, of course. Paul and Barnabas, with the heart of shepherds, were now fighting for the souls of their flock. They knew that it was impossible to work our way into the love of God. So they had to protect their flock. Now, with this dispute, the Jewish elders who were teaching this, who still believed in Jesus, they felt it best that Paul and Barnabas should go to the apostles and the leaders in Jerusalem and then ask them themselves. And says in verse 3, So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. I, I love how as they're traveling on this mission, they're, they're now still giving the gospel everywhere they go. They don't, they don't let down their ministry. They, they continue in it as they're journeying to Jerusalem. It says in verse 4, And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So now, we note in our Bibles in verse 5, it says that there are Pharisees who believed at this time. There were Pharisees who believed in Jesus as the Messiah, as Savior. So what we have here is a division now. A division amongst the Jewish believers at that time. And we still find this division amongst our church today. There are ministries of believers, people who believe in Jesus Christ, who are saved, that put an extremely terrible burden on on the flock, on the church. They implement legalism in the life of a believer. Legalism is a work, a salvation by works type of faith. But what legalism brings, it brings forth condemnation because we can never be perfect. So that believer many times struggles with condemnation And sometimes affecting them so much that it leads them to walk away from Jesus entirely. You see, when we're condemned, many times we're not as effective in our ministry because we don't realize that God's grace upon our life has freed us from the bondage of, of sin and has freed us from the bondage of works. So this division and for those believers that I, that I come across who I, I see bound up sometimes in legalism, uh, I don't come at them as my enemy, but, but I love them. And given the opportunity, I, I will share truth of what the Bible teaches. But it's not for me to go outside of a Seventh-day Adventist church and with a protest sign saying, you need to be free in Christ. No. And it's not for me to enter into disputes that are, are, are not edifying with people. Now, for Paul and Barnabas, though, they did see a, a reason in, in a time and a place that this needed to be disputed because these Jewish converts, their souls were at stake here. They could be led into this doctrine of legalism. So they were now doing everything in their power by the power of God, to make sure that people knew that the grace of God was for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. Look at verse 6. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us That by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Okay, so let me set this scene to you. You have Paul and Barnabas, right? They're kind of, as of now, they're, they're not the main leaders in the church right now. They're they're starting churches. They're going out. They were full of the Holy Spirit, excited. And people recognize this. People recognize that God was using them greatly. He was using signs and wonders through them. But now they're going back to the home church where you had the 11 disciples, the apostles now they're called. And these are are, are the big leaders now in the church. And so they're coming to them and there's this, this dispute with the Jews and Paul and Barnabas. And Peter is there listening to this dispute. Watching and he's probably watching Paul and seeing, man, this guy's like teaching truth. And he could see that fire in Paul. And then I, I, I'm i convinced that Peter in his mind, as he's hearing this dispute, recalled how God appeared to him in a vision. How God gave him this vision as he was is there before he was so accepting of the Gentiles, Peter he had this vision of a linen cloth coming down to him from heaven. And in this cloth were all sorts of creeping things, unkosher animals and creatures. And God told Peter in this vision, he said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter in his vision is like, not so, Lord. I don't eat things that are unkosher. I don't have my meat and cheese in the same plate, God. And God told Peter, Peter, what I have called clean, you must not call unclean. And it was at that point when Peter repented of that type of mentality and he went to the Gentiles and preached to them and he saw the Holy Spirit fall upon their life. Remember the the story of the, the account of the centurion and Cornelius, how they received the spirit of God. So Peter is now watching this and understanding, man, this, what Paul is saying is truth. In verse 8, as he continues, he says, So God who knows the heart acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. So how did the Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit and forgiveness of sins? How did they receive salvation? At the end of verse 9, it says, by faith. Now, faith is that simple belief, that belief that something is true. Jesus said with just Faith the size of a mustard seed. You'd be able to tell a mountain to move and the mountain would be removed. Sometimes that's all we need in our life is just that little bit of mustard seed faith. Back in the hippie days, there was actually a a Christian band called Mustard Seed Faith. I think they loved that idea that it doesn't take us to be these spiritual giants for God to use us. He just uses men and women who are available to him, who have just that little bit of faith. I'm reminded of the man who had a son who was demon-possessed. And he saw that Jesus was coming down the road and he called out to Jesus. He said, Jesus, have mercy on my son. Heal him. Remove the demon for my son. And Jesus asked him if he had faith. He said, "Do you believe?" And the man cried back to Jesus, he said, "I believe. Forgive my unbelief." Meaning he said, "I have doubts, Jesus, but I have a little bit of faith." And Jesus cast that demon out of his son. Just a little bit of faith. It's all it takes sometimes. And God can grow that. So this is how they were saved. How the Gentiles were saved. And look at verse 10. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? So the yoke, that was for the the animals, the the farm animals, especially as they would pull the the farm equipment, the load. And it was a burden to these animals. So Peter here, he's saying, look, we Jews were given the right of circumcision. And the Jewish people, we failed in living out a perfect and moral life. Commanded with circumcision. Circumcision. So this was a burden now that they were not able to fulfill the Ten Commandments. So why would the Jews now command the Gentiles to enter into this type of bondage? A bondage where there was legalism, condemnation, the inability to be perfect. In verse 11, he says, but we believe that through the grace of Of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Also, in the Bible, we know that Ephesians chapter 2 teaches us that it's by grace that we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You see, we cannot earn our way into heaven. I'm troubled by men and women who would seek to make themselves right before God by their own merit. I am troubled by the belief that we can get into heaven for being good people. You see, that's not how we get in. We don't get into heaven for being good people. The Buddhist monks, they are very moral men and women. They go off and they position themselves into a place where all they could focus on is to be selfless and to be uh, without pleasure, without the idolatry that this world has. But even in that, they are still sinners. They still have sin in their blood. The Bible teaches us that all men have sin and fallen short of the glory of God. And the requirement to enter into heaven, to enter into eternity with Jesus is perfection. So no one can enter into eternity with God without being forgiven, without having Jesus remove that sin. Now, what if you're thinking, well, they, what if they were like 99% good? Would God really send them to hell for that 1% of bad? They would choose on their own merit, those people, to reject God. Then their sin needs to have a punishment. Perfection is what is required to enter into eternity. So even if it was just one white little tiny lie that they told their whole lives, that sin needs to be punished. And the punishment, it's judgment, it's condemnation in hell. So Jesus needs to have forgiven them of this. There has to be judgment. And Jesus took that judgment on the cross, on Calvary. So for what is to us, freedom might seem like the, the others, the non-believers, as a burden. But what's, for what is to us this removal of our old life and, and freedom in the new life, to some people it, it seems to be an entrapment. But that's not the reality. They're being lied to. Now, as Peter is continuing to to preach on to them, it says now in verse 12, Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, Listen to me, Simon, Simon, by the way, is Peter, has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. So one thing I recognize about why God also, one of the reasons why he went to the Gentiles, why he allowed the Holy Spirit to come upon them, was so that he can choose his remnant. He can choose his people out of the many people who will reject God. God always has his remnant of people who will follow him. And that remnant, it's it's small. We are the very few of the many. But we're chosen by God and we have chosen God. And in verse 15, James continues on. He says, And with the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written After this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Now, this is something exciting for me. James here, he's quoting from the prophet Amos. And Amos prophesied that the, the tabernacle of David would be rebuilt. You see, God is going to have his temple in Jerusalem rebuilt. Now, there are these teachers who claim that when this is written that they're referring to a spiritual tabernacle. There are teachers who will say that this was speaking of the spiritual kingdom of God, meaning the the church as we see it today. But the context of the prophet Amos does not make it so. There are teachers who claim that the Gentile church, today's church, is the new Israel and that the Jews have basically been now forsaken that they had their opportunity, but because they rejected their Messiah, that God has now begun to focus solely and mostly on the Gentile church. And in doing so, they forsake much of Romans, which where Romans teaches us that God is not done with his children Israel. And then also in doing so, their end times prophecy study of it gets all messed up at that point when you, reti- when you try to remove Israel from the picture you end up with all, all types of, of strange doctrines doctrines including that the, the church will go through the great tribulation but no the Gentile church is not replacing Israel God is not done with his children his chosen. What we do recognize is that the tabernacle, uh, according to Scripture, it will be rebuilt again. Now, and this is what's interesting. Maybe perhaps in the last two weeks you heard about the Abraham Accords. So the Abraham Accords, which was completed in the last two weeks with President Trump, with Israel with the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain. These men got together, and they they signed this treaty, this pact, known as the Abraham Accords. They called it the Abraham Accords because all these nations are children of Abraham. And I recognize that the name Abraham, the man Abraham, is a very real person who is still talked about to this day. And this accord that they wrote about was basically a a peace treaty amongst themselves. What's very interesting is that many Muslims are concerned about this. They're concerned that certain clauses in this peace treaty are going to lead to the ability for non-Muslims to be able to worship on the Temple Mount. The Dome of the Rock Mosque. See, right now in Israel today, there's the Dome of the Rock Mosque on the Temple Mount that only Muslims can enter into and pray there. But now with these new accords, they are fearful that it's going to lead to non-Muslims being able to enter on the Dome of the Rock area and be able to pray there to their God. And that they'll have to set up some sort of division, some sort of wall that's going to separate the Muslims and the non-Muslims, so that they can pray. And they're fearful of this. They're fearful that the Jews then will, at that point, rebuild. And I've read this in uh, Al-Jazeera articles, that they're going to want to rebuild the temple. So, when, I, as I read this, I'm understanding that our time here is short. I'm understanding that Perhaps in our lifetime, perhaps, Lord willing, maybe one day my children will be that generation that sees that temple rebuilt. So what does that lead me to, to have a life like? Where we are watching history unfold. Israel, this tiny little country in the Middle East, is on the news. And God is preparing His church so that He can return. So this is exciting for us to see how God is going to continue to have His will completed in our life. Now look at what James continues to say in verse 18. Known to God from eternity are all His works. I'm reminded of the omniscience of God, how God knows everything from beginning to end. And then in verse 19, Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. So, James here, as he's writing now, or he's, he's ministering now, he says, look, let's just tell the new converts to follow these basic rules. First, that they were to stay away from things polluted by idols. What that meant is that they would have these sacrifices that were offered to idols back then, meat and barbecues, to these idols. And later on, they would take a portion of that meat and they would give it to the people and they would give it to the marketplaces and the marketplaces would sell that meat. And there were Jews who, and new converts who were convicted by the fact that that meat was offered to an idol. Now, Paul later would state that the idol itself is, is meaningless and vain, but he would exhort the church that they were not to stumble others by their partaking of such things. He said, look, There's going to be men and women who are going to see you eating that meat. And they're going to know that it was offered to an idol. And they're going to feel convicted. They're going to feel that you might be in sin. They're going to be stumbled. And if they themselves then begin to partake of that idolatry, it might lead to themselves going back into that idol worship. So he wanted them to stay away from things polluted by idols. He also said he wanted them to stay away from fornication. From sexual immorality. And this isn't a, a spiritual fornication. This is a literal one. He, re- referring to in their times how they had sex outside of marriage. How they were, had these temple prostitutes that would come down and seduce the men. And he wanted them to stay away from this. The word fornication... The Greek word for it, it's porneia. That's where we get our word pornography from. You see, sex outside of marriage was considered fornication. It was only, sex was only to be between a husband and his wife. Now he's saying these things that they need to follow because these were specific struggles that these Gentiles had because of the Greek society that they lived in. If you go there to this day, the Greek statues and in Greek culture, it's it's a very sexually explicit culture. He also warned them to stay away from the things strangled and from blood. Now, these were the dietary laws that the Jews were following. Um, later on, Paul would refine this practice of law. In Romans chapter 14, Roman. Uh, Romans chapter 14, Paul would exhort the Romans, look, if somebody believes it's all right to eat anything, but another believer is sensitive in his conscience, and he's only going to eat vegetables, those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't. And those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do, for God has accepted them. So this is again referring to look. We need to have our convictions before the Lord, and we need to stay true to that. I uh, I have a conviction about about having tattoos, and I, it's not a sin, but I have that conviction because I don't want to stumble others. Because I know for other people, it would be a sin to have a tattoo. For them, and I don't want to stumble. Anyone who might be able to hear the gospel preached simply because i I wanted to have a tattoo on myself well I, I do have a tattoo, but they're not it's from the past and it's not visible <laughs> I don't want to lie to you guys um, that's from before I, I became a Christian now we don't want to stumble other people if what I'm doing might be portrayed or or seen as evil to somebody else I don't want to do that I want to flee from all appearances of evil the Bible teaches us and at the same time I'm not going to impose those convictions that I have like let's say for instance it would be wrong for me to try to convince you that it's, it's sinful that you have a tattoo that you're going to get a tattoo It'd be wrong for me to do that. Now, there are those sins that I should stop you in. Drunkenness, sins of sexual immorality, sins of drugs, and all those things where I will say, hey, like, you're messing up in life, and God wants to love you, forgive you, but you need to turn away from that. We need balance as a Christian, as a mature believer, and we're growing in these things. And I'm thankful that I see us continuing to grow. I'm thankful that we're not who we were yesterday. And we're not perfect. But God is doing a work in our hearts and in our minds. You guys want to know great ministry? Great ministry is that you don't keep looking back. But you look at what God has given you today. And you move forward. Let's look at verse 21. He continues, For Moses had throughout many generations those who preached him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So look, James is now saying, look, like the Gentiles, they're going to hear the Old Testament laws. And if they're convicted by it, so be it. He's saying if they go to the synagogue, they're going to hear the word of God taught. And that's why, another reason why I love to teach verse by verse is because we get that full counsel. Look at verse 22. It says, Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely, Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some of you who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul was even stoned. Verse 27, we have therefore sent Judas and Silas who will also report the same things by word of mouth. Now that is not the Judas Iscariot who betrayed Jesus. This is a different Judas who is also known as Barsabas. Verse 28, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things that you abstain from things offered to idols from blood from things strangled and from sexual immorality if you keep yourselves from these you will do well Farewell. well you see paul would continue this practice of preaching freedom in christ to the gentile church In the book of Galatians, Paul, who had poured much of his ministry into the church there in Galatia, he taught them about the freedom in Christ that God gives them, that they have been saved by grace through faith. And then later on in Paul's life, he began to hear how the church in Galatia began to go back toward their old ways of trying to be saved by works. In Galatians chapter 3, the first five verses, Paul explains, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it was not in vain, was it? I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit And work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not. It is because you believe the message you heard about Christ. See, Paul wants to remind us continually through the Word that we should not go back to a salvation by works mentality. In verse 30, It says, So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Now Judas and Silas themselves, being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with the greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So there in Antioch, where Paul proclaimed much to the Gentiles of this gospel, they received these letters with joy. They received this idea, this truth, that we are free in Christ, that we no longer have to be under the bondage of the law. So Paul would proclaim this this doctrine everywhere he went. In verse 36, Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. So that's pretty cool, right? After they went on their missions trip, they come back home. And Paul says to Barnabas, hey, like, let's go back. Let's go back to those cities that we had visited earlier, those churches we started. I see that Paul and Barnabas, they have such a love for the people that they poured into, that they want to go back to them and see how they're doing. Now in verse 37, it says, now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. This is Mark the gospel writer. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and that had not gone with them to the work. If you remember in the middle of the first mission trip that Paul and Barnabas took, they had Mark with them. And at a certain point in the journey, right in the middle of the journey, Mark left them and returned home. Doesn't give us much information why, but he did. But Paul here seemed to have still been upset by that decision of Mark. So much so that when Barnabas was like, all right, let's go back now to visit the people we ministered to. Let's take Mark with us. Paul was like, no, we're not taking that guy. He left us. He left us right in the middle of our last missions trip. It says in verse 39, Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So now Paul and Barnabas, who seemed to be great brothers in the Lord, now were arguing with each other. And the argument got so fierce that Barnabas has said, look, I'm not going to go with you. I'm going to take Mark. We're going to go this way. And Paul said, all right, well, I'm going to take Silas and we're going to go this way. And what we see here is that men who were filled with the Holy Spirit, men who were were used by God greatly, they were still human. They still got mad at each other and and messed up. But I believe that God had allowed this argument to take place, not that he desired that men would be angry with each other, but that he desired and knew that though Satan would attack Paul and Barnabas' hearts, that they would be hateful towards one another, perhaps. He also knew that by allowing it to happen, that now instead of one missions group going out, there would be two missions groups going out. Paul and Silas would be going one direction, Barnabas and Mark another direction, and therefore the gospel being spread now in a a much greater capacity. So sometimes what the devil tries to use in people's lives to bring down the kingdom of God, God turns it around and uses it for greatness. At the end of, of Paul's life, when he's writing to Timothy, and he's writing basically his farewell before he's about to be put on, his head on the chopping block, he's about to die. He writes to Timothy, tell, Timothy, uh, he says, tell Mark to come. Tell him to bring my, my coat and tell him to bring my books. And what we recognize in Paul's life is that he had forgiven Mark. And that at the end of Paul's life, he wanted Mark to come be with him. He wanted Mark to be there because he realized now at this point that Mark had grown, he had matured. And Paul himself perhaps grew in his grace towards Mark. His forgiveness. You see, God uses broken vessels, still with all their humanity, to work out His glorious purposes. He doesn't need a perfect vessel, He uses imperfect vessels. And we're encouraged by the study this morning to know that we can trust that though we are failing, God is strong in us, and God always will be strong in us. All we simply need to do is just have that little bit of faith. Amen? Let's all stand. Perhaps in our hearts, sometimes we go back to thinking that we need to make ourselves right before God. But that it's us who needs to do the work. We simply need to submit to God, resist the devil, and the devil will flee. So this morning I'm going to pray and ask that God would remind us that God would stir up that work in us, that we rely on Jesus to give us righteousness, not ourselves, that our relationship with God would be one of a pure relationship, not based on our works. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray and I ask Lord Jesus that if there's parts of our heart, of our mind who have returned to trying to make ourselves right Lord God, on our own merit Father forgive us may we humble ourselves Lord and freely accept that free gift that you've given us Lord may we rely on your grace on your mercy in our lives Lord God may we be set free knowing that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus that the callings and the gift of God are irrevocable Lord that all things work together for good we love you Lord We praise you. We thank you for everything you've done. May your Holy Spirit use us. May we speak of Jesus, Father, to our friends and family members. May we use his name, Jesus. And it's in his holy name we pray.
1: Amen. You broke my chains of sin and shame, and you cover me with grace. You mend my life with your holy fire. You cover me with grace. You are the hand that reaches out to say, I am set It's for 4
0: they were going to have